Sisters, this is the sixth and last session of the study of the sacrifice of Christ. And before we get into uh, the topics that I have prepared for today's session, I'd like to bring up a couple of uh, items from yesterday's lesson. Uh, I'm afraid that my choice of language, in one case, maybe more, more than one, but in one case that I know of, wasn't very fortunate and may have been misunderstood. I said yesterday that I did not know the process of how the Jew under the Mosaic Covenant came under the Abrahamic or everlasting covenant. Well, that word process may have confused some because uh, a better word would have been ceremony. Now, I do know the process by which a Jew under the Mosaic covenant would come under the Abrahamic covenant. The process required understanding and belief in the promises and in uh, the uh, covenants made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he came under the under the Abrahamic covenant by faith. That was the process. Faith working in him to convince him of those promises. And uh, today, of course, the one who comes to a state of belief and conviction comes under the uh, Abrahamic covenant by the ceremony of baptism. But prior to Christ's coming, uh, it is not revealed what if any, that the ceremony was by which the Jew uh, passed under the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I hope that's clear, that it was the ceremony which uh, does not appear to be revealed by which the Jew under the law came under the Abrahamic covenant, because I think we're all convinced that uh, there were many, many Jews who never did come under the Abrahamic covenant because of lack of faith. So I hope that's clear. Uh, another matter uh, has to do with the meaning of the word repentance as used in the New Testament. And it was called to my attention that, uh, and, uh, that Dr. Thomas in Elpis Israel points out that the original Greek word, which I don't know at the moment what it, may, what it was, does not include contrition or sorrow for past sins. The original Greek word actually was confined to a change of life or a reformation in one's way of life. Now, to me, this has little significance because this does, to me, does not rule out the necessity for contrition for past sins. And I'd like to bring out some uh, uh, testimony to that effect. We might turn to Isaiah 57:15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth, inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And again in Isaiah 66, 2. For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, 
But to this man will I look, even to him that is a poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. And one more in Psalms 34, 18. That last one was Isaiah 66, 2. Now in Psalms 34, 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of contrite spirit. Now there's another similar one which we won't take time to read in Psalms 51, 17. I'll just repeat these four passages. Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 66, 2. Psalms 34, 18. And Psalms 51, 17. All of which attest to God's uh, desire or even requirement if uh, men are going to please him that they have a contrite spirit this is the principle and I think a contrite spit uh, is ne a necessity for anyone who seeks to serve the Lord and even though these are all in the Old Testament and were all given by <coughs> uh, prophets who lives under the um, mosaic dispensation I do not believe that, jo that uh, the Lord's requirements are different for the Gentile than they are for the Jews. I think this is a matter of principle, which would, uh, even though it was given by the Old Testament prophets, applies to all God's elect, uh, all those who accept God and Christ. Uh, furthermore, it, it seems difficult to me, and I could be wrong, but I, so I say this advisedly, it seems difficult to me that one who comes to a belief and an understanding and an acceptance of God and Christ and wants to change his way of life would not do so unless he was dissatisfied for his past life and therefore uh, was sorry for the things he may have done uh, when he was uh, living under the constitution of sin. It's the old man that we put away and if we don't have that desire to put away the old man and don't feel sorry for the deeds we may have done as an old man then it does not seem that we really have come to a full acceptance uh, uh, and uh, conviction in regard to God and Christ. So much for that. Now, let's uh, consider today's topics. And uh, I have several here, rather, they're not unimportant, but perhaps they, uh, well, I don't even want to say that they're not as important as the things we've talked about, but they, are, they really are related to them and really supplement what we have been, have been saying. And we read in Matthew uh, 3, 1 to 6, of how, of John's baptism. What we're going to speak of today, uh, in, at this moment, at this time anyway, is Jesus' baptism. Now John's baptism, we read, in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John then came preaching two things. He came preaching repentance or reformation, and he came preaching uh, to the people to prepare themselves for the way of the Lord. Then we read over in the 13th to the 15th verses of the same chapter, of Jesus' appearance before John. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan under John to be baptized of him. 
But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I think uh, John's reaction to Christ coming to him was a natural thing, uh, but Jesus overruled him. Let's go back for a moment to Jesus uh, to John's baptism. He did not preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He did not have perhaps knowledge of it, and uh, there were many who went. Uh, suffered, if that's the word, uh, John's baptism, uh, and it was found later that this was not sufficient. We read in uh, Acts 19, 1-5 of the necessity for those who knew only John's baptism to be rebaptized for the very reasons we stated. John's baptism didn't include the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. I'll have any reference to Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. It was only one of repentance and to prepare for these things. Acts 19, 1-5 And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Spirit? Since ye believed, and they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in the previous chapter, we have the story of uh, uh, Apollos. Apollos, too, knew only that John's baptism, and when uh, Priscilla and Aquila discovered this, then they uh, took him apart, took him... Uh, apart and expounded unto him the way of, of God more per perfectly. Now, it doesn't say that Apollos was rebaptized, but from what we've read in the uh, uh, 19th chapter, the first five verses, it would appear that Apollos too must have, uh, if they were consistent, must too have had to be rebaptized in the name of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> but when Jesus, as we just, as we read there in Matthew, uh, when Jesus uh, when John remonstrated, Jesus said, Thus it becometh me to fulfill all righteousness. Well, uh, this is clear enough, perhaps, but it's not very definitive. What was the righteousness uh, that Jesus had to fulfill? Because he had no personal sins, as we've remarked so many times in this class, he had no personal sins to confess. Why then did he have to undergo this process of baptism? because John's baptism was of repentance and Jesus had nothing to repent of. John's baptism was to prepare the way of the Lord, but here was the Lord, or Master. Well, we know from what we had a day or two ago that baptism is a symbol of death. The baptism that we are familiar with, that we underwent, is a symbol of death, among other things, as recorded in Romans 6, 3. Uh, <clears throat> John's baptism was a promise, in effect, to turn over a new leaf by the subject to slay their old man of sin. But, you know, this was a very, very difficult time in uh, the plan and purpose of God 
the transition for believers from under the law of Moses to under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I'm sure that in your studies you have found many incidents which are difficult to explain uh, other than uh, this, it was a difficult time of transition and uh, raised many problems. One problem we might mention was the difficulty many of the Jewish Christian believers had was they had been brought up for years, uh, brought, brought up in the Mosa under the Mosaic Law. They had obeyed it to the best of their ability. Uh, and uh, it was difficult to suddenly say, well, we can do away with this. We don't need to follow the law anymore. We follow the law of Christ. And uh, Peter is an ex excellent example of that. You remember that he and uh, Paul had a falling out temporarily because <coughs> Peter. it was difficult for Peter to see uh, that he did not have to obey the law anymore. There's nothing wrong with obeying the law, but Peter and others, if you remember, tried to impose it on Gentiles. This was one good example, perhaps the best one we can mention, of the difficulties of making this transition through this period, the earlier uh, period of the uh, uh, of Christianity, as the during the apostolic uh, era. Now. <clears throat> It seems to me then that Jesus' baptism was in effect to set the stage for this transition, to uh, begin the work of transition, if that perhaps is a proper expression, <clears throat> to set the stage for that which was yet future, setting the stage for uh, the baptism which shortly his disciples would begin to practice. <coughs> a looking ahead to that better and more efficacious baptism into the death, burial, and resurrection of himself. Further than that, I believe that it had implications regarding his own sin nature. Now, John's baptism, as practiced on all those who came to him, uh, <clears throat> had no such implications. It was only a question of repentance. But this is part of the transition, I believe, it, to me, this is, is uh, the only explanation of why Jesus had to be, had to be baptized of John, to uh, a preview of what was to come, of the bap not only the baptism to come, but that for which it was the antitype, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, uh, under which the uh, uh, believer passes from under the law of sin and death or Adamic condemnation into or under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It was a recognition of his own condemned nature, of which we've talked plenty. It was a prefigure of his own death, three years in the future at that time, which was to set aside the law of condemnation for himself, as we found out, and all who should believe and obey him. In other words, he prefigured in John's baptism his literal death, which was to follow. And as we pointed out, this, uh, his own death resulted in the condemnation of sin in his own nature as well as his brethren. And so this was a ceremonial condemnation of his nature in anticipation of the actual, literal condemnation of sin's flesh by his own death. Now, another... Uh, topic that we feel is essential to this subject 
is to reject the idea that Christ was a substitute for our sins, a substitute sacrifice for our sins. He did sacrifice for us. You know, perhaps I can best express this idea which I want to refute by an old gospel hymn, which probably we've all heard at some time or other. Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. Now it takes nothing away from him but to say and to declare that this was not so for several reasons. As I say, we're taking nothing away from the work, the missionary work and the sacrifice of Christ when we say that he did not do it all. For these reasons, first, if Christ died instead of us, his death was a substitution for ours. We would not die. Second, had he done it all, our salvation would be assured at the time that we accept him and put on his name at baptism. And three, if we owed a debt, that is our life, to God, and if Christ paid that debt, then we wouldn't owe anything, would we? Because our debt has been paid, and our indebtedness no longer exists if someone else paid for it. In this case, if Christ paid our debt, then we owe nothing. Now, this is not true, uh, as you know. Uh, I hope you know, and I hope you uh, realize. Uh, because, as we've shown in these lessons, we do die, even though we're uh, in the way of life, even though we have accepted Christ. And number two, I'm sure we all realize that our salvation is not assured simply by putting on the name of Christ at baptism. This is only the beginning rather than the end. And three, we still owe God our lives. We still owe him our lives, uh, our righteous service, which we would not owe him had Christ been a substitute offering for us. Uh, God did not say that if that man Christ will die, I will set you. Go, I'll, I will let you go free. He said no such thing. Rather, he could have said scripturally. He didn't. Uh, uh, at least not in the words, uh, in the paraphrase I'll give you. But he could have said quite scripturally, quite truthfully, that if you will believe in and accept Christ, if you will acknowledge your own unworthiness and your own nature, which is unworthy of life. If you will confess your sins and repent, that is, change your way of life, and if you will place yourself under Christ's wing and be taught of him and led by him, then, uh, then I will receive you unto myself. I will forgive you all things. I will change your vile bodies and make them like unto Christ's glorious, immortal spirit body. <clears throat> Friends, uh, we cannot say that if we have accepted Christ and put on his name, there is nothing more for us to do. There is a great deal we must do, and try as we may, we still fall short of the glory of God. Uh, in this matter of substitution, uh, I like to come back to this. Let's let's use an actual example. Uh, suppose I uh, 
old brother Kelly down here a hundred dollars and uh, I'm poverty stricken and I can't pay it and he needs it and brother Ted O'Kelly here who has I know a very warm heart comes over and says Paul forget it I'm loaded I'll, I'll pay Charles a hundred dollars and uh, you don't owe him anything and that's all right Paul don't you worry about it you don't owe me a nickel all right. <laughs> well, do I owe a debt after this? I may owe a debt of a moral debt and a debt of gratitude to Brother Ted here for taking this indebtedness off my hands. But the one I owe the debt to has been paid. It's Brother Kelly. And as I say, uh, Brother Ted here is uh, in such a good financial condition that $100 more or less doesn't make any difference to him. So I, I really don't owe him a this, this perhaps is a little overdrawn or exaggerated, but this is, I present this as a, a, a means, as an argument, uh, or of reasoning. Why, if Christ did it all for us, then we don't have to, he's paid our debt to God, we don't owe God anything. And I'm sure everyone will agree that that just is not so. Uh, to come back to what we were saying, I quoted, uh, from the scriptures that uh, try as we may we all of us still fall short of the glory of God but even the most sincere and of and and uh, the most upright we all fail and the Apostle Paul has I think emphasized this who speaking of the elect of the brothers and sisters says speaks of them as those who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory honor and immortality, eternal life, which God will grant. Romans 2, 7, if you want the reference. Uh, so this matter of continuance and well-doing indicates right away that we owe God something, that we our debt is not fully paid. And then again, the apostle says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Bring every thought into obedience to Christ. This is our reasonable service. I know we quoted this a day or two ago. This is our reasonable service. It's not unreasonable for God to require this of us. But it is a service that we owe him in spite of the fact that Christ died for us. And when we have done all these things, uh, which I commanded us to do, say, as uh, Luke 17.10 expresses it, say, let us say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only that which was our duty to do. In other words, it's not possible for any servant of Christ to do that over and above the call of duty. Matter of fact, none of us ever live up to the possibilities of uh, serving God uh, perfectly, other than, of course, Jesus. Our works and our thoughts must be good works and they must be good thoughts or perhaps to be more consistent in, our, in my thinking I should say that our thoughts must be good so that our thoughts and works will be good because uh, our works of course are the result of our thinking so we want to emphasize that no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we dedicate our life, our strength, and our energies, 
to the service of Christ, we still fall short. We cannot, in other words, earn eternal life. It's impossible. Because to earn eternal life, the only way to earn eternal life is that which Jesus did by living a life of perfect obedience, which none of us can do. We can only earn forgiveness. We can only earn forgiveness. And that forgiveness is ours only if we make every effort, if our pattern of life, general pattern of life, is acceptable. You know, uh, a brother said to me once, Peter won't be in the kingdom. And I said, why? And he said, well, didn't he deny the master? It's true, he did. Don't we all deny him? Not in the way that, at times, perhaps, not in the way that Peter did. But look at Peter's life thereafter. Uh, it's remarkable how these disciples, after Christ had risen, it's remarkable the transformation that took place in their lives from a period, from a state of deep depression and sorrow to one of joy and dedication and sacrifice. And we know that many of those disciples sacrificed even their lives for the truth's sake. So Peter, though he did deny Jesus at the time of Jesus' arrest, the pattern, the overall pattern of his life was something that we can all envy. So uh, I feel that certainly if Peter was not going to uh, obtain salvation, there's very little hope for any of us. But eternal life is a gift. It is the gift of God. And it is only by his grace or his mercy that we may be saved. And we don't uh, know, and I think I may have mentioned this before, we don't know by what yardstick, if I can use the term, our performance will be measured. And I think because God is just and merciful and he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, that the same standard will not be used for everyone. The standard will be according to one's personality, ability, uh, ability uh, to serve God, and ability, uh, mental ability, and uh, well, there are several factors uh, that would enter in uh, to it. Uh, and I think this is indicated uh, in some of the parables, which we won't go into at this time, or at all in this class. Uh, that's really a different subject. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, rather epitomizing what we've said, uh, says, when s but when sin abounded, grace did much more abound. This is almost necessary. Sin abounds, and if grace and mercy of God didn't exceed that, we would have no hope at all. But when sin where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned under death, even so might grace abound. And you all know that grace and mercy, are, the two terms are practically synonymous. Grace abound through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I would like to summarize briefly what we've talked about this week. approximately in the same order that we have been discussing these, this subject in class.
and you'll have to write fast if you're going to if you're going to take this summary. I don't think perhaps you, you, you need it because you've got it in your notes, so take notes. First, man was created very good, neither mortal or immortal. Now, I'm not going to discuss these because we've discussed them in the class. This is just to summarize what we have been saying all week. Uh, because or as a result of sin, man became mortal, dying. He became sin's flesh his flesh became one of sin with a bias or a tendency towards sin God did not leave matters there he instituted a plan for man's redemption this redemption not possible without the shedding of blood it required prior to Christ animal sacrifices to be made in faith looking ahead to the one great sacrifice of one possessing the same mortal dying nature as all mankind this man Jesus son of Mary of the condemned line of Adam Abraham David and so forth was a man therefore possessing the condemned sin nature yet innocent of any personal transgression. He voluntarily gave up his life as a sacrifice for sin. In giving up his life, he shed his blood, thus sealing the Abrahamic covenant. He rose from the dead through or by his own shed blood. Those who believe and accept him have this same hope. By baptism in our day, as in the Christian era, they escape the penalty <clears throat> imposed on them by the law of sin and death. By baptism, they come out of Adam or, and rather, into Christ. By baptism, they come under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Through baptism, all past sins are blotted out forever, are blotted out and forgiven. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism opens the door to salvation. Baptism must be followed by a new life dedicated to God and to righteous living. All baptized, or all those in covenant relationship to Christ by whatever means, have their resurrection from the dead assured. All such must appear at the judgment seat, there to answer for their deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And I might say there that we have said very little about the judgment in the judgment seat, but I don't think it needed any elaboration in the, uh, at this time those whose pattern of life has been generally good will be recipients of the grace and the mercy of God they will receive that spirit life that knows no end raising their voices in eternal praise glorifying their creator and that reminds me uh, of something that I heard some brother uh, say a long time ago which has impressed me very much uh, 
believers, perhaps the, the instinct of believers, uh, when asked, uh, what is your objective, uh, may say, to be in the kingdom. This is our objective, of course. And if we didn't have the promise of eternal life in the kingdom, why, uh, there would be very little incentive for man to serve God. Uh, but that should not be our first objective. Our first objective should be to glorify God. And if you stop and think this over, if we do properly and acceptably always glorify God, then the secondary objective of being in the kingdom is taken care of. It comes automatically. It is God who gives us life, God who provides us with the necessities of life, but much more important, who has offered us life eternal. He is the creator, we are the created. He the potter, we the vessels. We owe everything we have and everything we are to his mercy, his love, and uh, his justice. And so if we always glorify God, the other things, our other ambitions and objectives will be taken care of automatically. Coming back now to my summary here, we said that they, such as we've been talking about, will receive that spirit of life that knows no end, raising their voices in eternal praise, glorifying God from everlasting to everlasting. But the rejected will be cast out in shame and everlasting content. This is the second death. And it is our prayer and earnest supplication that it may be that for none of us or for none of the brethren everywhere did Christ shed his blood in vain. Uh, that completes my prepared lessons, but perhaps the time now has come to uh, sing, uh, sing figuratively, not literally, my swan song. Uh, first, uh, I'd like to tell you something, a, a story I've heard, it may be apocryphal, but, uh, and I've forgotten where I heard it, but it seems that a college student, uh, uh, he was to be one, he had, uh, he was a freshman in college, and on the opening of classes, he approached his professor and he says, well, I'm here, now you just fill me full of knowledge. Uh, that's like uh, driving up to the gas station with uh, your car and saying to the attendant, well, I'm here, my tank is empty, fill up my tank with gas. But that to me is not, and I'm, this is not original by any means, is not the learning, a good description of the learning process. Uh, this places all the responsibility upon the teacher or instructor or professor or whatever you want to call him. And he can do nothing unless he has receptive minds, unless he has minds which uh, want to do a lot of studying and digging for themselves. So my concept, which again I say is not original with me, but with which I agree, my concept of the learning process is that the teacher, instructor, or what you may want to call him, his duty is not to cram knowledge into you, but his duty is to present ideas uh, and testimony and evidence to 
uh, inquiring minds whose minds will thus be stimulated uh, to look into these things further for themselves uh, and we would hope come to the same conclusions uh, as to what is truth and what is error. This reminds me, of course, of the Bereans, who in the uh, apostolic days, they heard Paul gladly. They were glad to listen to his expositions uh, on uh, Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But they went home, we're told, and they too studied uh, diligently they dug into the scriptures to see if those things which the apostle had said were true. Now this is the proper way. This is the learning process. I would hope no one would uh, go away from here and say, well, I believe this because Brother Safford said so. I hope I, Brother Safford has said nothing but what was first said in the word of God. It's been mentioned several times uh, this week. How uh, This is our only source of absolute truth. And uh, anyone, including myself, can uh, make mistakes, can wrongly interpret and wrongly divide the word of truth. So if I have in any way, uh, I'm certainly, I haven't filled anyone full of knowledge. In fact, the knowledge is there in the minds of all of you probably as much as in mine. But if I have uh, been able to uh, present ideas, and thoughts which have stimulated uh, uh, your thinking processes to increase your faith, then I will be very, feel very satisfied, very happy about it. And I want to add this, that in any class, and I'm sure that the rest of you who are teachers, uh, I don't really like that word because it indicates uh, a superiority that I don't have, but uh, those who teach those uh, who instruct, uh, they, I believe, get more out of any series of lessons, any subject, than do those who have to sit and listen to him. For this reason, that if he properly prepares himself, he has to put in a lot of diligent hard work. And as I say, I think other teachers and instructors will, I know, Many of them have so expressed it. They are the ones that get most out of the class. So I'm very happy to say that whether you have or not, I hope you have got something out of it. I have got a great deal out of the privilege of coming down here to Kentucky to conduct this class. That's all. I'm a little early. I'm sorry. I